Well, hello. Or should I say, hello. Uh, an old couple were sitting on their rocking chairs out on the veranda one afternoon and uh, the old man turns to his wife and he says, Honey, whatever happened to our sexual relations? She scratches her head, she thinks for a moment and says, I'm not sure, dear. We don't even get a Christmas card from them anymore. <laughs> We're at the sex part of our series on love, sex and marriage and it might surprise you just how much the Bible talks about sex and how positive it is about it and how gloriously wise God's ways are. Whatever age, whatever stage, whether single, married, widowed, divorced, struggling, content, the Scriptures have something to say about sex and about you. But we also need to know uh, what he says, even if this is something that's not part of your life at the moment or you think it never will be anymore, that's long gone, so that we can know how to disciple others, encourage them, help them if they're struggling, and so we can work out what to do and what to say and what to pray in the midst of the culture wars that we're experiencing and in the midst of on these issues. The Scriptures arm us to help others. But if we're going to uh, look at this issue of sex, then we've got to be frank and realistic about it because that's what the Bible is, frank and realistic. Uh, God invented sex. He made us sexual beings. Uh, it's a powerful and wonderful part of our human makeup. And God's not embarrassed to speak plainly about it for our benefit but before we get to what God has to say, I just want to reflect on the revolution that we find ourselves, I don't know if we're in it or at the tail end of it or after it, uh, many of you would know better than me uh, about the massive cultural shifts that have been taking place over the last few decades uh, because you've lived through them. Uh, they say the 60s were where the revolution happened, the sexual revolution but the seeds had already been sown with the ramblings of Freud and Jung, the, the invention of the contraceptive pill in the 1950s. Uh, but I believe it was also due in part to the deaths of 50 million young men in World War II, which left tens of millions of children hitting their teens and 20s without a father. And in the rebuilding of society and the promotion of family and stuff, there was this boom of children as well after the war. And so the boomers were coming. And they got to the 60s and people were eager to fill in the void left by the lack of fathers and what do we do? We're now in this cold war, the world's going to end. And so sex, drugs and rock and roll were the answer. And so the 60s came and free love was the catch cry of the Western world. And various people, intellectuals like Kinsey, Mead, Masters and Johnson were aiming to provide an intellectual foundation to justify it all and, and, and undergird the revolution that was happening. And so following on from that in the 70s, there was a deliberate and concerted push for freedom of speech, which was primarily an issue about pornography with the Oz Magazine court case, which meant that censorship laws were repealed, which meant that in the early 80s, you had a whole stream of movies hit the mainstream cinemas featuring full-on nudity and sex. 
uh, billed as teen comedies, Revenge of the Nerds, Porky's Revenge, all those kind of movies. In the 90s, in the, the dialogue in sitcoms changed. It wasn't family ties anymore. It was now, well, it was all about, well, sex in the city. And it's just normal now to have sex scenes in, even in PG movies. Uh, and so you've got to be careful what you take your grandchildren go to see. You're not, you'll be shocked at some of the things that come out. And it's just normal to uh, see sex used in advertising because sex sells. Uh, and, and whether it's the media's effect on society or society's effect on the media, I suspect it works both ways, sex is just all around us. Now, it always was <laughs> because it's just a normal function in every marriage. But it just wasn't discussed and aired for all to see. But what's happened is an exchange between the public and the private. Those things which used to be confined to the bedroom have now been brought out for all the world to see. Uh, whereas what was the very public act of setting up a new family at the marriage ceremony has now turned into the private act of just shacking up together, which is done very quickly, very quietly, with few people knowing about it, with little fanfare, and fairly soon after you meet. And so here's some words I think describe uh, where we're at as a society on the issue of sex. See if these ring true for you. Obsession. Uh, the question for every relationship, whether real or on TV, is when are they going to do it? Sex is seen as the epitome of every relationship. The goal, the very thing we ought to strive for, it's not uncommon to hear people, especially in the TV shows, uh, to complain they've not had sex for eight days, as if somehow they've lost their humanity and they're, they're subhuman now. And porn addiction is rampant, obsession. But it's also commitment-free. People advertise for casual sex in the classifieds, in the newspapers, if you still read them. And uh, if you go internet dating, more than half the people you meet will expecting to hook up with you on the first date. Uh, you know, I, we, I paid for dinner, now this is my due. Uh, to tie yourself to a committed relationship is seen as limiting and damaging to your very self. And the result is that sexual partners come and go and the person someone's with now is just a vehicle for enjoyment in the meantime and until they don't float your boat anymore and then move on. And if there's to be any commitment at all, if you're going to stick with that person, well, it can only be with someone you're totally sexually compatible with who rocks your world every time you go to bed. And so it's commitment-free. There's experimentation. That's the third word. Um, if the idea of tying yourself to one person is strange, so is the idea of one type of sexual activity or even limiting yourself to one gender. You need to try things, new partners, new techniques, new gadgets, act out your fantasies. Experiment leads to expression. You never should be ashamed of what you are or what you do. In fact, flaunt it. Let it all hang out for the world to see. If it causes other people offence, like we just heard in that lyric, they thought the lyrics were fantastic, they're appalling, right? You don't like what you're saying as we do this stuff? Turn off your TV. Turn off your radio. <laughs> 
If it causes offence, that's their problem, not yours. And all of that comes under the all-encompassing, all-powerful catch cry of freedom. In the immortal words of the Rolling Stones, I'm free to do what I want any old time. So love me, hold me, I'm free any old time to get what I want. It's all about me. And yet, it's so destructive of me. For with sex as obsessive, commitment-free experiment and expression has come massive statistical changes in the number of sexual partners, a massive reduction in the age at which youth are entering into sexual relationships. Ten-year-olds uh, are watching porn in the playgrounds over the road during the week. Thirteen-year-olds um, are having oral sex on school buses. Um, the abortion clinics are full and the laws have just changed, so there's no question that a doctor will give you one if you ask for it. They can't even ask why anymore. Sexually transmitted diseases are so normal now that there's ads for herpes and for whatever else, for uh, uh, genital lice treatments, just in your normal reading and stuff. Um, people are doing permanent physical damage to their bodies, sticking things where they're not meant to go. Uh, a friend of mine had to have surgery for hemorrhoids and sorry, surgeon. Uh, he said, well, let me see. Had to pull down his pants. And the guy said, wow, that's wonderful. That's the first intact sphincter I've seen in three years. Because people have been sticking things where they shouldn't go. And you end up in nappies. And the psychological damage and hurt from it all is immense. We are living in a society of broken people who have used each other for quick and easy sexual pleasure, who have been used, who have been abused, who have abused men and women who can't make relationships last and who pay the price in their very humanity. And yet at the same time, no one can fathom why. They don't, it, it, it should be working, shouldn't it, this revolution? La Trobe University conducted the largest ever study in Australian sexual practices and attitudes. It was back in 2003. Um, but they found, surprisingly to just about everyone, that those people who had the most sex and those who had the most satisfying sexual relationships were, in fact, religious conservatives who lived in committed marriage relationships and who didn't explore other options. They consistently enjoyed better sex and more sex than everyone else. But to the world, they go, that's crazy. It doesn't make sense. How can that be? Well, let's turn to the Bible and see what God's got to say about it all and why it just might explain why his way works. What does sex by the book look like? Well, many people seem to be under the impression that the Bible's view of sex is that it's dirty, naughty, not quite right. Uh, there may be a certain grudging admission that it's a reproductive necessity, but you shouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> um, the forbidden fruit of Genesis 3 has been taken by many to be a metaphor for enjoyable sex. Uh, just see the Desperate Wives title page. Um, Adam and Eve saw each other standing there naked and went, Ooh, you know, I, I want a bit of that. <laughs> they couldn't help but do something that they weren't supposed to do. 
Now, that's completely false. That's got nothing whatsoever to do with the fall. God invented sex. It was his idea. From the very beginning, God intended sex to be a beautiful and wonderful part of the created order. It's one of, but it's only one of, the many, many blessings that God gave. It is not the be-all and end-all, but it's a fantastic thing. He built it into our very humanity that we be sexual beings. What was his first commandment to humanity? Genesis 1.28, we saw a few weeks ago, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Um, it's part of the blessing of God that they are commanded to have sex. Right? God said, go do it. And we saw a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 2 that God made Adam and Eve in their marriage one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. And sexual union and intimacy is the most obvious and powerful uh, physical aspect of that oneness. Now, there's more to the oneness than sex, but sex is the physical expression of it. And, And it's a beautiful and it's a wonderful unity. And so God's design is that sex and marriage go hand in hand. One is the physical reality and expression of the other. And so it's not surprising the Bible consistently paints a joyous picture of sexual union between husband and wife. It it celebrates it. It even gets quite raunchy as it talks about enjoying sex. Uh, Song of Songs before the service I noticed that one of our members happened to read, uh, read the passages because they were printed in the outline and I heard the comment, well, that's an eye-opener, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but in chapter 4 it goes on, you have stolen my heart, my bride. The Chapter 1 is about the, the woman talking to the man in chapter 4. You have stolen my heart, my bride. How delightful is your love, my bride. Your lips drop sweetness As the honeycomb, my bride, milk and honey are under your tongue. And then it gets more explicit. Chapter 7, I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruits. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots. Your mouth is like the best wine flowing smoothly for my love, gliding past my lips. And I won't go on. (laughs) Uh, What's funny is that years before we were going out, Alice and I were on beach mission together. That's where we met. And uh, uh, she and I, who didn't know each other, were asked to read random selected passages from the Song of Songs for our beach mission team. Uh, uh, Alison still hasn't forgiven the leader for the embarrassment of it. But hey, she married me, didn't she? Anyway, so <laughs> it worked in the end. Uh, see, sex is not given to us from God purely and solely for the purposes of procreation of having children. It's also given by God for our enjoyment and pleasure and to build our unity. And so the good instruction of Scripture is to continually find pleasure in your husband or wife's body and in no one else's. And so Proverbs 5 verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, Water flowing from your own well 
Should your springs flow into the streets, streams in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts always satisfy you. (laughs) Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? Now, he's writing to his son. He'd say the same thing in reverse to his daughters. But sex is to be exclusive, according to God. Further, sex cements the relationship, and it does it very, very well. Sex is like superglue that that bonds two people together, which is why it's so hard on a person when someone they've been sexually active with leaves. Uh, You see it in the on-again, off-again relationships that people have. Uh, if, a, if I notice a couple continually uh, get breaking up and getting back together and off and off again, uh, one of the first questions I ask him is how far have they gone physically? And invariably, the answer is they've gone the whole way or very close to it. And so they've glued themselves to someone who they don't get along with, who they don't like, who they don't really want to be with or they know is bad for them. But they're bonded physically and it has this dramatic impact and it keeps bringing them back together again because they're glued to someone they they know they shouldn't be. And so they're on again, off again. And because it's like super glue, you you, uh, leave a bit piece of your every partner that you've had um, and you take it into every future relationship, just like when you pull your fingers apart after you've sued them, glued them together, you will leave a piece of skin from the other finger on the other one. Now, it's actually part of the good design of sex by God that it works so well in doing that, in keeping us glued to each other. But it's also why sex and marriage have to go together in God's world for it to work properly. Sex is for marriage and marriage is for sex. It's both ways. The commitment to never leave under any circumstances, better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, health, and the glue which binds them together reinforce each other. The Anglican Marriage Service puts it so beautifully. Marriage is a gift from God for the well-being of mankind and for the proper expression of natural instincts and affections with which he has endowed us. Marriage is a lifelong union in which a man and woman are called so to give themselves in body, mind and spirit, and so to respond. That from their union will grow a deepening knowledge and love of each other. In the joys and sorrows of life, in prosperity and adversity, they share their companionship, faithfulness and strength. It's great stuff, the Anglican prayer book. (laughs) And because of the nature of it, the closer the bonds of unity in the marriage the better and more satisfying the sex. Because it's more than just using the other person for a few moments of pleasure. It's the giving of both people's mind, body and spirit in love for the other. And so doing things that build the relationship, that demonstrate care and love for the other person is by far the most effective form of foreplay, right? It's better than roses. It's better than stuff 
take the garbage out. Uh, one of my mates, his wife, uh, says she, no, there's no greater turn on for her than when he takes the garbage out. Uh, because when he does things like that, he creates an environment of loving concern for her and the home they've built together. And she gets Randy. <laughs> and uh, they have one of the cleanest houses I know of. <laughs> And they also have lots of kids. But anyway, <laughs> but let's get practical. Let's turn to the passage from 1 Corinthians 7 uh, that was read and, and see what God's got to say there about sex and marriage and uh, draw out a couple of things maybe to work out on our own relationship if we're in one or prepare ourselves for the future or that we might pass on to others to encourage Uh, and help them. 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's responding in Corinthians to questions that he has been asked by that church about sex and marriage. You can see there in the first verse that they're wondering whether sex is dirty and they shouldn't have it anymore, even if they're married. Uh, That's the question they've asked him. Uh, and he's responding to that, and he reaffirms the goodness of marriage and the goodness of sex. And in particular, he helps us to see two things. One, that sex is and should be an act of service for the other, and it's, it's not taking. And two, he points us to great, God's great desire for all of us, in whatever situation we're in, for holiness. So you see in verses 3 and 4 that sex within marriage ought to be for the benefit and service of the other person and sex is not for yourself. So verse 3, a husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife. Right? It's a duty. Right? And likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body but her husband does. And if he stopped there you'd say, sexist pig, how dare he say that? But he goes on, in the same way, A husband doesn't have a right over his own body either, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another. So it's not setting up, you know, that women are the sex slaves of men, nor is it doing the other thing, the other way around. It's about mutual concern for each other. That means I gather that you need to get to know the sexual needs of the other person in marriage. Find out whether doing this or that is painful or difficult or embarrassing or whether there are ways you can make the whole experience more pleasurable and enjoyable. It means you might have to help each other out at various times and encourage them. Uh, It's one of the things we can help educate the next generation on as well you know we can pass on our wisdom that many women find sex painful especially early on right because your body's adjusting to a new activity and there are circumstances in life that are going to make sex difficult i think we've got to help the next generations as they enter into their relationships and marriages to to know that right it's not all skyrockets in flight afternoon delight every day right (laughs) and also there's going to take some effort to get good at it right so that 
They're not going, oh no, did I marry the wrong person when the world is not rocked that first night on the honeymoon? <laughs> like, there's certain expectations that we can be setting and helping them with. And so Corinthians 7 really is a call for patience and for generosity. We are to be generous lovers who talk about it and act with kindness and learn what works and what brings joy to the other person. It's the opposite of using sex as a weapon or as a bargaining tool. If you don't do, you're not getting any. Right? You can't read 1 Corinthians 7 and think that, that, that's okay in that. It's the opposite. It also doesn't mean that you can demand things of the other person. doesn't mean that either. But it does mean that you may sometimes have to help your wife or husband even when you yourself are not exactly in the mood or uh, that you might voluntarily put yourself out for the other person. Where it also points to is that sex should be a feature of married life. If you've let it slip, then you need to talk about it together and work out a way forward. For a lot of married couples, the regularity of their sex lives is a litmus test as to how the whole marriage is going. And to give up on the intimate side of marriage because you're both tired and frustrated with each other so that neither just feels like it will only exacerbate the problem and it ends up becoming a vicious cycle. Now, there's inevitably all sorts of reasons your sex life might be interrupted, having kids, physical problems, impotence, illness, relational problems like when you've been fighting for weeks on end, situational problems where one's away all the time for work or for play. Um, but all of those things can be and should be addressed. And I think the passage helps us there too. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So that's the second point, isn't it? That the important thing is holiness. That neither partner be tempted by Satan to do anything that would jeopardise the purity and integrity of their marriage you know, themselves or create an environment where the other person is tempted to stray. So, if you decide for whatever reason you need to pause the intimate part of your life together, if at all possible it should be temporary, agree on a time frame and then reassess. And, and it should be to work on your relationship with God in whatever area of concern it is. I take it that's why he says, for prayer. He's not saying just leave off for five minutes while I have a quiet time tonight, <laughs> Right. We'll come back to it, honey. <laughs> uh, in other words, the break is to sort things out with God, with each other, and come back together. And the danger in not working something out is it leads to distance in the relationship or worse, lust after other people, pornography, or even to adultery. And since sex is the glue for marriage, you've got to keep applying it. So here's God's pattern, God's design for sex, and it's really good. But I realise that for some of us, maybe even many of us, 
that we're broken and we're hurt. We've been damaged in this area. Some of you may have been or may still be in a situation now which is outside this basic pattern that we've been looking at. You've messed up. You've been sleeping with someone who you're not married to. Uh, You've betrayed your wife and husband in your mind maybe or with pornography or even progressed to adultery. Maybe it's in some other way uh, that you've been living outside of this pattern. Whatever the case, then you need to hear this carefully. There is and there can be forgiveness from God in the gospel. This is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus had bled and died for you that you might have forgiveness and life and to be restored in your walk with God. But you do need to repent. You need to turn around. Repentance is not just praying a pair of confession, it's doing something about it. It's going, I was going this way, now I'm going to go this way. What you've done is destructive to your future relationship. If you're not married or if you are married, it may well affect your wife, the way your wife or husband treats you from now on. But you need to come clean about it. Sin loves the dark. That was Jesus' point, wasn't it? He, he said the most amazing verse, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. So whoever comes to him might find life and not perish. Fantastic promise. Right, forgiveness, healing. But people stay in the dark and don't come to that because they love the darkness. Don't love the darkness, leave the darkness, come to the light. That's what Jesus was talking about. In the dark, sin festers and grows and the guilt will not go away by itself. You need to cauterise the wound. But just like doing that to a festering sore and your body leaves a scar, better have a scar than the disease. God can and he does forgive. He has given his son for you. Let him cut the cancer out. And the good news is that he went to the cross so that you could be healed and forgiven. Just like the snake was lifted up in the pole in the wilderness, you could look to him and have full healing. Look to him. But then there's also some here who have been victims in this area. Uh, something like 20 to 25% of women in this country have or will experience sexual assault. Uh, Maybe you've been there, you've been hurt or damaged by someone else and now you're living with shame. Maybe you've been assaulted, maybe you've been cheated on, maybe you've been betrayed. Can I also say to you that with Christ there is and there can be healing and mercy. Jesus knows our deepest needs and he understands our hurts, our failures, our fears, our shame and he is in the business of bringing new life. But then there's also those who want to honour God in this area but are frustrated because no matter how much they have longed for a husband or wife, it's not happening. Or maybe you've lost a husband or wife and you are not any less of a person, human, because you are single. You are not subhuman because you aren't having sex. God doesn't love married people more than he loves single people and he's calling all of us to find our 
identity and love in him. Whoever we are or whatever our situation, we mustn't let our brokenness define us. These things might help to explain who we are, but they don't have to define who we are. To be defined by our brokenness is the sure path to bitterness and loneliness and godlessness. Don't let them define you. They may explain who you are, but don't let them define you. And Jesus is in the business of bringing new life, wholeness and a new identity in him. And just because there's pain now doesn't mean there always has to be. But let me conclude. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. No doubt about it. And while scriptures aren't obsessed with the pleasures of sex in the same way our culture is, and while it can be the source of great pain and shame when we step outside of God's pattern, all the same, God's undeniably enthusiastic about sex and makes it plain to us that physical sexual pleasure is a very good part of his creation for a man and a woman. It's something worth celebrating and something worth giving thanks to God for. So why don't we do that? Father, we thank you. You are wise and good. You're our maker and you've given us instructions for every area of life to bring us healing, joy, satisfaction. Father, we pray for those who are married that you would uh, protect their marriages uh, and help them to work on this area and every area of their marriage. Uh, we pray that their intimate life might bring joy and um, <coughs> fulfilment to both, uh, both husbands and wives. We pray for mutual concern for each other. We pray for where uh, those marriages where sex is difficult, that you might have mercy. And we pray for those who are struggling because of brokenness of her, whether because they've done the wrong thing or been victims of the wrong thing or are struggling with emotions or feelings or fears or loneliness. Father, please do your work. Help us to see your incredible love and that life, forgiveness, mercy, hope, joy is found in Jesus Christ and that we don't need sex to be totally human. Father, please help us to trust your ways, to love your ways and to be a light in our community which is run from your ways and living in darkness. Father, please may your gospel shine forth from us in every part of our lives. Amen.